The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Hello, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery. I'm joined today uh, once again by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, and that's Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning to you, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a it's a nice day here in Chicago. We're coming off the uh, everyone who was up late watching the Game 7 that's right. of the World Series going to uh, extra innings. What Steve, an incredible did you game. have a chance to did you watch the game I, last night? I, I watched every second of it, and I stood up for the last six innings. Probably. It was very exciting. The last, the last two, there was a end of the nine, ninth inning two-run homer yeah. by the Indians, which really put a damper in the Zach's household uh, when, when, when that occurred. <laughs> right. We were happy to see them pull it off. And they brought the tarp out. They brought the, the rain delay. Right. He didn't know how long right. we were going to be away. We weren't sure what was going to It was crazy. It was, it was yes. very exciting. Very really, exciting. You it's hard have. to explain to people who aren't from Chicago the effect it has on the culture and the city here, I, uh, 108 years since they've won the World Series. 108 years. And uh, and that, 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 that it's, we have to find something else to, 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 to focus on now. <laughs> I think we'll find from it. From a sports perspective. Yeah, right. Oh, from a sports perspective. Exactly. Right. We're, well, right. So we're joined also by Steve Phillip, as mentioned before. He's an investment consultant for Zach's Investment Management. Uh, good morning, Steve. Morning, and thanks for having me. Oh, sure. And then we're going to get to some things that, we're go- that you're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, right. But first, I wanted to address uh, Mitch Let's okay. We can start. Okay. Let me see if I can segue this. Got it. My, my brain in a fog a little bit. But um, so the Cubs can win the World Series. If I'm Donald Trump, I'm thinking that means I can win the presidency. Right now, with the specter of a Trump presidency does loom on the market. I think we've seen over the past week or so. Even Nate Silver's 538 website has basically tripled Trump's chances of winning the White House in just the past couple weeks. Um, now earlier you had calculated, I think, uh, like a seven percent drop or so in the market if Trump wins, as opposed to a gain of four percent if Hillary Clinton wins. The markets have begun, uh, have been down for a, a week, a week and a half yeah. or so. So, it's, do you think this is being priced in right now? Yes, it's it, the okay. So, based on a thirty percent chance of Trump winning and a seventy percent chance of Hillary Clinton winning, okay, the expectation was that if Trump wins at that level. The election is just immediately held. Uh, the market would fall about seven percent. If Clinton wins, the market would rise about four percent. Right now, what happened is uh, from that 70 30 percent level, there there was uh, you know issue after issue on Trump's side, and his chances of winning fell. So his chances of winning went from thirty percent down to about ten percent. How long were we talking about? Uh, maybe about like three weeks ago, I okay. would say. And as his chances fell, the market tended to rally slightly. And now, as his chances are rising, the market is coming under uh, increasing pressure, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat due to the election and, and somewhat due uh, to other issues. Uh, but the net result is that if the uh, if there is a Clinton win, 
the effect is would likely be greater the more contested or uncertain the election is. So if going into uh, November 7th, there is perceived to be a toss-up in the election. Talking about the day before the The day election. before the election, that's much closer than it has been at any other point in time. Okay. Uh, the effect of this movement will, would, would, in my estimate, be slightly uh, greater. That being said, if we historically look, there's a, uh, you know, a, a whole vein of academic uh, literature focused on uh, calendar effects, which is saying how do elections, how does the U.S. election in particular affect the market? Okay. And they look at all sorts of uh, effective uh, measures, and they try and see what is, uh, what is uh, statistically significant. And there really are essentially five things uh, that they have found to be statistically significant. Okay, let's find and out And the statistical about. significance of this is, is very weak. So it's not a very strong level of statistical significance. But it's there are the things same, that people are looking yes, at. Yes, it's the same sort of statistical significant level of uh, studies that show, for instance, the market uh, tends to go up on Fridays. It tends to be stronger on Fridays uh, than on Mondays. The, the differences are small, but there are enough days there that you can come to some degree that there, there might be an effect there. And that the market goes up a little bit uh, stronger uh, prior to three-day holidays and prior to holidays uh, potentially due to optimism of, of the people who are investing. Okay. Okay. So here's what here's what looks like there might actually be the case. The first thing is that in the last two years of a presidential term, the market tends to exhibit stronger returns than the first two years of the return. And the explanation is that the party in power uh, times their spending so that it influences the next presidential election. So that uh, what happens is they try to back end the spending because when they increase their spending, there's more people getting jobs. It's a stimulation of the economy. And that's tended to uh, happen in the last two years of the term uh, to influence the next voting. And it makes and it look more of, of a successful uh, term. A successful term. So if you're going to have a massive spending that you're, the, the administration is going to engage in, they don't want to do it right when they were elected. They want to do it when they're about, you know, a couple months or a year before they're running for election the next time. Okay. So if imagine you're, you're, you're creating a, a huge jobs activity through building, uh, rebuilding infrastructure. You don't want to do that as soon as you got elected. You want to wait till the next election is about to come aboard, right. and then all of a sudden new jobs start happening and there's a stimulation of the economy. Right. So that seems to be there. Now, the, the issue is there have only been 40-some-odd you know, presidents of the United States, and to have statistical significance, you need probably about 40 to 50 uh, data points. So you're going back and you're comparing data from the 1880s, from the, you know, the 1900s, pre-World War II, right. and looking at the stock market. And I would say that anything uh, post-World War, uh, pre-World War II may not be the best data uh, to be looking at because it's not comparable. Right. So, okay. so the first thing is that in the last two years of an election, returns of the market tend to be higher. So we're exiting the last two years. So that would indicate you're going to see a, a slightly uh, weaker market in the first two years of the next uh, presidency. Okay. And that, I think, might materialize. But again, the significance of that is very, very weak. And it's it, in, in strategies that try and change equity and debt mix based on where you are in the presidential cycle have been analyzed thoroughly to say, let's uh, have a 60-40 mix 
in the uh, first two years of the presidential cycle and have an 80-20 mix in the last two years, they, they don't show any excess return. Okay. So it's, it's a very, very small occurrence that is due to some data uh, elements uh, earlier on, uh, you know, in the early 1900s that really affect the, uh, the returns. Okay, and you have even fewer data points when you think about... The post-World War II era. Well, that and, well, for sure. And then also that we're changing presidents altogether. It's not a second term of... And then just conceptually, it doesn't make a, a tremendous amount of sense that you're saying, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a four-year period and I'm going to divide it into two, two periods. So by definition... Right. One of the two periods has to outperform the other the other second period. And there are many ways you could have cut it. You could have cut it into, uh, f- take a four-year period and cut it into four years. Four different years, And right. you could have said the third year just happened. So a lot of it could just be the randomness of, of market returns over time and us looking to find patterns in a randomness of return. Uh, by definition, you're going to, if, if I take it and I cut it into two-year periods, either the front two years are going to outperform the back two years or the back two years are going to outperform the front two years. And you have an explanation either way. If it's the back two years, the explanation is the timing of the fiscal expenditure. If it's the front two years, uh, the explanation is, you know, euphoria of the populace and uh, increased spending uh, due to psychologically being excited about their person being elected. Okay, very interesting. So so, so I don't put a tremendous amount of faith in the uh, presidential cycle, but it is there and it is mildly uh, statistically significant, I would say. Uh, So that's the first? That's the first thing. Uh, the other things have to do with whether Republicans or Democrats are in power and how that affects different segments of the market. And again, the issue I have with all of these studies is that you've had 40 some odd, how many, Mark, you knew 44, 44 presidents and the president is coming up. And so you have 45 uh, data points. And that's not enough to really have a tremendous amount of statistical significance. How many presidents have we had in the post-World War II era? Fewer than that. Fewer than that. I want to say it's it's a it's a like a 60-year period. It's a four-year term, uh, so maybe 15. Right. Right. So you have 15 data points that are really uh, consequential, and that's not enough to draw any sort of conclusion. Right. But if you analyze it going back to the full history of the United States. And you find, uh, you, you, you map different parties to the Republicans and to the Democrats. The Whigs become uh, the Republicans. The Republicans and right. I, I don't want to get into all this history. It's stuff, tough because it's tough. Switch, there are some switches to. over time, right? But if you do that, what you find is that in Republican administrations, generally speaking, larger cap stocks tend to outperform better than smaller cap stocks. Okay. And the reasoning there is that the Republican administrations are more are less likely to engage in spending, which and they're less likely uh, they're more likely to have sort of rules and regulatory changes that help incumbent large firms. All right, and this is consistent if you see which industries are supporting uh, which candidates. Now, it, it, this is a very strange election, but generally speaking, if we uh, forget about this election, which is very controversial, and we go back and we look at the past like three or four elections. You find that uh, you know the Democratic uh, industries tend to be technology, mm-hmm. and Republican industries, I would say, tend would would just off the cuff would tend to be maybe energy and right. potentially industrials, industrials things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So, historically speaking, Republican administrations have been more beneficial slightly to larger cap stocks. Democratic administrations have been more beneficial to smaller cap stocks. And also, uh, it looks like fixed income investments do better 
in Republican administrations, and equities do slightly better in Democratic administrations. Okay. So all this has the caveat that there's not enough data to come to a real conclusion, uh, but if we extend it and we sort of really focus on it, we can find these differences that exist. It would seem to make sense ideologically, too, if you talk about just basically conservative yes. versus liberal. Yes, or... that, that a Republican is less likely potentially to run up debt. Without running up debt, you're not going to have as much inflation you're not going to have as much spending, mm -hmm. and uh, you're going to have interest rates remain uh, lower, which is going to help uh, you Almost know fix, fixed income investments. Mm -hmm. the, the Democratic administration might engage in more spending, uh, and that increase in spending is going to help growth occur. And when that growth uh, potentially occurs, it, it kind of helps these smaller companies uh, more than these in incumbent uh, large companies. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so now the, the question becomes, well, is this what you're going to expect going forward? And in this election, it's, it's very strange because if you really look at what's going on and you look at the at component stocks of the S&P 500, mm -hmm. over the last 30 years in the U.S., the component stocks of the S&P 500 have changed in terms of where their revenue is originating from. So looking back 30, 40 years in the 1980s, uh, that, that's actually you know, 35 years ago, 36 years ago. Sure. You did not see a as large a percentage of the revenue coming from overseas. So the uh -huh. difference between Coca-Cola and a uh, company in, in the U.S. Uh, you know that was selling uh, the, 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 the you know Just was domestic. much smaller. Okay. Exactly. And so what's happening now is you're seeing that 40 to 50 percent of the revenue is coming from overseas. And so the issue is, if you really look at what the president can really do, the president's power in terms of its effect on the economy is very dramatic in terms of his ability to ratify and eliminate trade treaties. Mm -hmm. Okay, true, yeah. So he can kind of enter into trade agreements and just say this is our new trade agreement and negotiate it through the State Department. Okay. Or they can say this trade we're, we're, we're no longer going to follow this trade agreement. And doesn't need to go through Congress. He doesn't need to, he, some of it, but he doesn't need to go through as much as if he wants to change tax rates or uh, create infrastructure spending mm -hmm. or change laws related to anything that's happening domestically. Okay. So it's like, for whatever reason, the way the government was designed, the president has a lot of more power when it in, when it's uh, involving how the U.S. relates to other countries, both in trade treaties mm -hmm. and in, in military activity. So the president could conceivably uh, pick up the phone and say, we need to bomb Af uh, you know, uh, Iran tomorrow, and uh, I have a feeling they would start bombing Iran. They would, they would, they would, people would get upset about it and worked up, but he would say, based on this information, we had to make a decision, and we decided that this is the way to go. We've uh, seen similar things. And we've seen that. similar things to happen. So the same sort of not unilateral power, but the ability to engage in activity without having a check and balance on it is there for trade. And in this instance, the Republican candidate is very much anti-trade, and the Democrat candidate is less anti-trade. Right, which is different than the normal Which setup. is different than, normally what has happened is both candidates have been pro-trade. So right. generally speaking, trade is one of the few things that economists kind of agree on is beneficial to each of the entities trading. It might not be beneficial to all the people in the two countries, right? right? But this country and this country generally benefits uh, from lower barriers to trade. If you, uh, and there's all sorts of issues. If, if your country makes potato chips better and this other country makes microchips better, you start making all potato chips 
they start making all microchips. You give them your potato chips because yeah, you, you can make them, them right. and they give you the, the, your microchips. Now you become better off. But the the issue is, well, what if the uh, to to make the potato chips you need to employ everyone in the country, and to make the microchips you need to employ a very few few number of people. Oh, and what if you want your country having a potato chip manufacturer? And the other company is uh, other country is a microchip manufacturer. You may, for strategic reasons, want the country to be more focused on technological uh, elements of trade than sort of uh, basic materials, agricultural elements of the trade. But but most people are made better off. The the people who can make the potato chips cheaper can buy more microchips. The people who can bake the microchips cheaper can buy more potato chips. Everyone consumes more potato chips and microchips in these two in these two things. So what happens is. The, both of the both of the parties traditionally would be would, would, would be pro-trade. And in this case, you have one party or one candidate that is anti-trade, and the structure of the government is such that he can implement his the anti-trade policies without a tremendous number of checks and balances. So right. the net result is that the reason the market is getting gets worked up as Trump rallies is because, if he is elected and starts engaging in, tr- in trade restrictions, it's, it, it, it's, it's a multi-person it's a multi, uh, you know, game here. It's a multi-element game. We put China restrictions on China. China puts restrictions on us. Mm-hmm. The euro puts it on China. Trade, everyone starts putting tariffs on what their goods are in an attempt to boost their economy and boost their employment. And uh, it, it, it tends to hurt everyone. But where it really starts to hurt is the U.S. multinationals. Because they're getting 50% of their revenue from overseas. overseas. So normally you would look at this and say, well, if the Republicans win, I would want to buy large cap stocks. And if the Democrats win, I'd want to buy small cap stocks. But in this instance, it really is is somewhat reversed. Okay. So if, if you see these changes in trade, the likely effect would be to put downward pressure on U.S. multinationals and put upward pressure on domestic U.S. companies that are now protected uh, from global com- competition. So if you have two tire manufacturers and you have one giant tire manufacturer that's producing worldwide in China and shipping tires, you have another one that's still trying to produce in the U.S., that would help the one that's producing in the U.S., and it's more likely that that company is a smaller cap company. So in this instance, you would expect to have happen that if the Republicans win, you would expect the smaller caps actually to do slightly better uh, than the larger caps uh, moving forward. This is worth noting, however, that perhaps candidate Trump is not necessarily right in line, and especially with trade deals, with his party in general and the, and the congressional representatives there. There's a disconnect, and trade is a major issue. And it's, a ma- it's, it's just like this anti-globalization tidal wave that's hitting the U.S., that's hitting England, and we'll get back into it, and, and, and that is what's driving all of this. Right. And it's the effects of globalization on these economies are likely making the economy better off, but the pain of the globalization is highly, highly localized. Right. So if we get tires produced in China, and you think of all the millions of tires we buy each year, and if we can reduce the price of tires by 40% or 20%, think of all the money everyone saves to spend on groceries or spend on that, that's very great. But what happens is the people making the tires in Ohio or in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. do not have jobs. So the pain is highly localized right. and the benefit is highly, highly distributed. 
So if we're going to produce our iPhones in China, or we're going to produce them in Asia, and we're going to put them together, everyone gets a cheap iPhone. Right. Well, everyone's on the cheap iPhone. But you don't have factories in the U.S. employing people to produce those iPhones. Correct. So the, so the problems tend to be very localized, and the benefits of globalization uh, tend to be uh, very highly distributed, and it's hard to see the benefits, and it's easy to see the problems. Okay, we'll take a short break, Mitch. We're going to take a short break and uh, have some messages uh, from our sponsors. Uh, please stick with us. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Um, welcome back, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zach's Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery, joined today by Mitch Zach's, portfolio manager and founding principal, and Steve Phillip, uh, investment consultant for Zach's Investment Management. Uh, we'll be speaking with Steve uh, a little bit later. Um, I wanted to just first say before we start a discussion again, Mitch, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago, 800-245-2943 where you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. If you'd like some more information, you can email us at ziminfo at zax.com, or you can visit our website online at zimwealth.com. Uh, are we still giving away the free stock market outlook, by the way? I think so. We, okay, we have a free it on a regular basis, and if people would like to look at it, it's a very it's, good research. It's very comprehensive. It's a, it's a very good read. Uh, it's it's not dry and boring either. It's actually, it's, it's it pops, you know, when you, when you look at it. At, and that... Uh, for the free stock market outlook, you can call that same number, 800-245-2943. Uh, okay, Mitch, so uh, Mitch on the markets. Which well, we is the keep to, if you want to keep talking about the election, there's one extra which, point. That oh, I, that's I, right. I, we I, didn't I, get to that one. So one extra point, which is that if you look historically, uh, what you find also is that the market tends to have a higher rate of return with the lower volatility when Congress is not in session. 
Okay. Okay. So when if Congress is in session and you look at the months and the days that Congress is actually in session and they're meeting, the return of the market is actually lower and has a higher volatility than when Congress is not in session. And so less of a chance of them screwing things up. That that's what I that's my interpretation. One interpretation is that the, the, the news gets people upset that they they, they become more pessimistic. Okay. Uh, and there's a whole a group of literature that says the more pessimistic people become, the less likely they are to buy stocks. Okay. And the less likely they buy stocks, the more downward pressure it puts on them. Uh, but I believe it's because there's less of a chance for uh, changes to occur when Congress is not in session. So again, okay. this gets back to this concept of what the market really wants out of this election is a gridlock. So it wants no changes in this direction or in this other direction. They don't want uh, Bernie Sanders and they don't want, I mean, I shouldn't say Bernie, they don't want someone very far on the left and they don't want someone very far on the right. They want very, very little changes to occur. So they, and they want different representation within the different, uh, so that uh, whether you're in the Senate or the House or the White House, uh, they want that to have a, a mix of some sort, not have it all be belong to one party. Ideally, they want the presidency and the House to be different parties. That's what I mean. Yeah, right. You, you want the, so you want the House and the, if the House and the president are different parties. The president could want to do the X, Y, and Z, but the House never agrees with them and nothing gets done. And so the, what really is going on is that that's what sort of the markets want. That's what kind of looks like it's materializing. But if that doesn't materialize, I think the market will take it negatively. But that rises the uncertainty level. It rises the uncertainty. Your, your stocks are valued based on what you project them to earn on a per share basis, discounted back at a relative interest rate. And if you have uncertainty from a political standpoint, there's all this question of whether, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, this change is going to happen or that change is going to happen and how that's going to affect the, this company effectively. That's very interesting. Okay. So that's, those are the five points then uh, in talking about what to, what to expect. Because by this time next week, when we have the Steady Investor Program, the election, I'm pretty sure, will have been decided by then. I hope we will, we will be done with it and we can move on to uh, issues that I feel are more pertinent to, uh, not that the election is not pertinent, but it's, it's, it's kind of a sideshow yeah. uh, to, to the real question of, you know, what's happening to productivity growth, what's the effect of globalization, uh, what is the effect on uh, corporate earnings over long periods of time. It's interesting you bring that up because we just saw a read uh, this morning from Q3 productivity yeah. that actually swung to a positive of 3%, 3.1%, I think, after three straight quarters of yeah, negative low, productivity. Right, right, negative growth or low. And even the revision for Q2 was up. I mean, yes. it was still negative, but it was up much closer to uh, to break even. So what that signifies a strength within within the economy, I imagine. It signifies you're going to see some inflation starting. Uh, that's right. That's what it's going to bring. So you're going to start to see inflation. This large movement I'm anticipating out of fixed income and into equities is likely going to continue to materialize uh, going forward. Okay. And what does that do for interest rates as well? We're more likely as, to see as you rate. See, as you oh. see inflation, nominal interest rates are going to go up. Uh, the, the real rate, which is the nominal rate minus the inflation rate, may not move as much, uh, but you're likely going to see uh, an increase in inflation over time. All right. Uh, and I, just, I, I think that's, that's generally not great for fixed income. Higher inflation is not great for stocks, but it's going to affect fixed income more negatively than it would affect equities. Okay. So I think equities are really poised to outperform fixed income over the next seven to 10 years. Okay. And there's certain industries that would benefit more from that, from interest rate hikes, banks, uh, insurance companies, that sort of thing, correct? I mean, I mean, the basic concept is that if you, if you think about inflation and if the company 
has higher inflation in terms of costs and has higher inflation in terms of revenue, then their profit goes up at a, at a the profit Increased numbers level. are high inflation, mm -hmm. where it becomes an issue if, if there are sort of these menu costs and the company, uh, think, of a, um, think of a restaurant and they have uh, menu prices and to change if the price, if they want to change the prices of the, what they're selling their goods at, uh, McDonald's has to make a giant menu change across the entire U.S. Right. and print up new menus and say, here are our new prices uh, for every piece of uh, food that we're selling. But meanwhile, they have to deal with uh, fluctuations in food prices. Egg prices are going up, meat mm -hmm. prices are going up, uh, bread prices are changing. So what happens initially in inflation is that bread prices go up, meat prices go up, egg prices go up, but McDonald's doesn't change the amount of money they charge for a burger. Because they can't, they they can have their costs fluctuate on a daily basis, right. but they they can't fluctuate their menu costs. It just you can't do that. So if the menu costs in industries where you're able to fluctuate both the revenue and the costs at the same level, they're the least uh, exposed uh, to potential inflationary pressures. Essentially. Okay. Very interesting. And then for a company like uh, McDonald's, too, you want the reliability. You want the you reliability of it, but you have this issue that they can't they they can't increase prices. As if, if, if egg prices go up 10%, they, they can't run around and say, we're going to increase the price of all our goods that require eggs by 10%. They just kind of have to wait and then wait a couple of years. And then after a year or two, they can increase their entire price. They absorb that and then they absorb that and say, where do we expect egg prices to go? And what do we expect? And we expect eggs to become even rarer over time, whatever it is. Right. And we're going to increase the price of, of, of this good that they're selling. Right. So, it's, so they're definitely, but over long periods of time, Inflation in equities is not a, as huge a problem as it is on the uh, fixed income side. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now let's turn to the Mitch on the Markets okay. article from Zach's Investment Management. Um, this title uh, from the most recent version of this is called, Is the Corporate Borrowing Binge Out of Control? Now we're talking about the corporate uh, borrowing binge. We're talking about new corporate debt issuance, and it's set to eclipse $1.5 trillion this year alone. Okay. Um, tech companies, for instance, are on the hook for $451 billion, a 42% increase from a year ago. Uh, this is because of low interest rates, greatly, I imagine. Yes. Uh, and this is the time to borrow. When, when the rates are low, now is the time to get it. Now, do you see this as being uh, out of control? I, I don't see it as being out of control, but I see it symptomatic of a peaking in the fixed income market. So okay. if you ask me what would you what do you usually see before an asset market peaks, you see incredible issuance of that type of asset. So before the stock market generally peaks in 2000, uh, less so in 2008, you saw an incredible issuance of equities. Equity prices are going up, 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 and then everyone starts selling equities. They they want to take firms public. They want to take secondary equity offerings. Here, the corporations are trying to sell everyone fixed income. They're trying to sell bonds. Right. They want to sell more and more bonds. They get, and so that's telling you that the price of bonds might be a little bit inflated. Really? Yes. They, why would they be selling massive? The, the, the people, the CFOs of these companies are not, uh, you know, they're, they're sophisticated people. And they're saying, well, the interest rates are really low. Bond prices are really high. Uh, we have a reasonable credit rating. Let's uh, raise some money by issuing bonds. And then what happens is they now have these bonds on their uh, on their balance sheet. They have to pay the interest on the bonds. Right. A lot of times the interest on the bonds are not like uh, how people have mortgages where it's a fixed interest rate. It's tied to something like the uh, London Interbank Offer Rate, the LIBOR rate or something right. like that. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see uh, effectively 
what they have to pay on their bonds change over time. So what you would expect to happen is as interest rates rise, corporations with lower debt levels to have better quality earnings mm -hmm. and to have less of a pullback on earnings due to higher interest rates. But I think it's, it, it, it is very consistent with what you started the conversation with, which is the increase in productivity. Right. You start to see inflation occur. This is exactly what you would expect to see when inflation is very low and about ready to pick up. You'd see a, a record issuance of uh, fixed income insurance. So this is something that's not really a surprise to anyone then who's following this sort of thing. It, the surprise is the length of time it's it's been going on for. And the sort of industries that you're seeing are increasing uh, bond issuance. Tech companies, $451 billion, a 42% increase from a year ago. Right. That's unusual. Okay. Okay. Usually tech companies are in such fast changing environments that they're not willing to issue bonds. And usually bondholders are not willing to buy bonds without physical assets. So your traditional bond issuance is, you know, a company producing an industrial product right. where they can issue bonds and they can use their property plant and equipment as sort of collateral for those bonds. Now you're talking about tech companies, software companies, and they're issuing bonds, and people are saying, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just look at the cash flow of these goods that they're selling." And the issue is that the tech world is changing uh, so quickly, right? That if there's some change that occurs, uh, the bondholder is kind of out of luck, I was right? Gonna, right? Right? It's not like an equity holder where you're okay. You're saying if something changes, I'm getting uh, the the earnings of that corporation. They're expecting a fixed payment. And if they don't get the fixed payment, they're supposed to be able to take assets and sell them right. uh, to make their to, to, to make themselves whole again. And in these companies, the tech companies, there aren't a lot of assets that they have uh, to back up the bonds. So you have the problem of low collateral bonds, and you have the problem of bonds being issued in industries where they weren't traditionally issued in. It's the same exact thing you see in the equity markets near a, 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 a peak. In the equity markets, what you see is everyone starting at near the peak, all these companies start issuing equity. And the companies that are issuing equity are companies that uh, you know never people never thought of before. Law firms are saying we should be going public and things like that. And and you're seeing the same thing in bond world that you see in equity world uh, when you see uh, sort of prices uh, hit peaks. Effectively. Okay. Well, in the tech industry specifically, I wanted to suggest perhaps it's the maturing of the industry in the first place. Cisco and Intel used to be growth firms. Now they're pretty much stead. They're almost like industrial. Right. But the same way that Cisco and Intel came about in a very short period of time, right. there could be a technological change that could make them outdated very quickly. Whereas I don't think, uh, yes, there could there could be you could, there could be changes in fashions and trends and what people want to consume uh, to put Procter and Gamble under pressure. But I'm more confident looking forward, uh, you know, 50 years and saying, well, I, I, I my guess is Procter and Gamble is still going to be here. Intel may or may not be interesting, right? And the reason is not because. Uh, you know, Intel's products are bad. It's just I can see a technological change occurring, a new chip manufacturing process, uh, a change in, in chip fabrication that Intel doesn't catch on to quick enough, and uh, their business is eliminated. Where I have a harder time uh, seeing uh, soap manufacturing change uh, dramatically over a 50-year period. That's going to uh, uh, produce lower earnings or produce, you know, cause Procter and Gamble to come under massive pressure. That's very interesting. Okay, so there's three factors that investors should be uh, keeping in mind when looking at the debt side of a corporate's balance sheet. And uh, the first thing is, is the return on equity greater than the borrowing rate, right? So right. can you go into explaining that a little bit? 
if, if the return on equity is higher than the borrowing rate, uh, you, you can earn more on the borrowed money than the interest you're paying for, and it, it makes sense to, to try and uh, you use some leverage. So if you can earn, okay, so your return on equity is basically saying what, when I invest, when I put money into that company mm -hmm. as equity, what is the rate of return I can generate on it? The easiest way to think of this is in, 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 uh, in financial terms with banks. Banks need an initial cash amount to start lending out. And the question is, well, if we give the bank $20 million, how much are they going to be able to return in the difference between uh, after they leverage everything up, they take all these deposits in, mm -hmm. they lend out money, they leverage up, you know, 10 to one or something like one, five to one, whatever the ratio is. And they're saying, well, the 10 to the $20 million in investing is going to generate a 5% return on equity. So you're going to generate a million dollars in profit and you have to keep the $20 million in the bank. This uh, return on equity we calculate in the same way for almost any company out there. And the question is, if you if the company raises money, then uses that money to grow their business, the return on equity is supposed to be the growth they get for investing in that business. Okay. And the issue is, most companies are not using their debt to do that. What most of them are doing is they're issuing the debt and doing one of two things. They're engaging in financial transactions. They're either going and buying back their stock, right. or they're going and they're making acquisitions. Okay. The acquisition... Uh, path it's not a good path it is it's like a um if you're at an art auction and they're auctioning off a piece of artwork whatever that piece of artwork is and there's a hundred people in the room and you win the auction for the art i can't tell you if you like the art if you didn't but i can tell you you paid more for that art than 99 of the other hundred people thought it was worth right so by definition the person who buys in an acquisition during an auction pays more money than anyone else is willing to pay. That means they pay too much. They pay too much. So if you're raising debt to make acquisitions, you're pissing money away because you're, 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 you're taking all this money in, you're spending it, and you're buying a company for more than everyone else feels it's worth. This goes now, back now to the question is it might work over time. You spend 20% more than someone else spent for the asset. The asset grows over a 20-year period. You're seeing synergies you, down you, the road, you right? Might, or not even synergies. You might be able to identify assets that are not correctly valued. But generally speaking, if the other 99 art investors don't want to buy it for that much amount of money, you're paying too much for that piece of artwork. Okay. And so the same thing happens in a, in a corporate acquisition. If these companies are issuing a debt and they're buying, they're engaging in merger and acquisition activity, that is going to be wasting money over long periods of time, especially if the acquisitions don't pan out to be particularly well. Okay. All right. Well, we're not going to have a time uh, to get to the other two points on this, but I, I, I highly suggest listeners of The Steady Investor go to Mitch on the Markets at Zach's Investment Management and check out this article called, Is the Corporate Borrowing Binge Out of Control? We're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Steve Phillip um, to discuss um, some interesting things. I think you should definitely stay tuned. So we'll be right back. Thank you. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. 
With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call one 866 472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, thanks for staying with us. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery with Mitch Zaks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. We're also joined right now by Steve Phillip, investment consultant for Zach's Investment Management. Uh, we said hi before, Steve, but uh, now we're going to finally give you a chance to talk. Thanks. I, I don't know that uh, I'm necessarily a person that needs to talk here. We'll, no, we'll Steve, let Mitch it's good, talk. To, it's good, it's good uh, to hear from you. We, we, we've talked uh, quite a bit about the election. Obviously, it's on everyone's mind. We all understand the importance of, uh, of, of building the election results into your investment thought process right. as an investor uh, and, and as one of our clients. Um, but what I want to talk about briefly is how we actually invest money and get people to um, understand the long-term nature of what we're trying to accomplish. In other words, today it's the election. Uh, after this president is elected, whomever, it's going to be the whatever, recapitalization of the European banks. Or something else. To take yeah, the Fed is going to be raising right. rates in December, perhaps. It's always going to be something. The point is there's, there's always some event on the horizon that's going to prevent us from committing to a long-term investment strategy. And if you couple that with the uh, all-time skepticism and trust in the financial industry, it, it can be very difficult to commit to uh, you know, a firm and a, and a long-term investment strategy. So I want to talk briefly about how we work with clients to try and overcome that trepidation. Um, and let's start with uh, our approach. Okay. Um, at Zach's, uh, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Now, I, I, I'll leave this to you, Mitch, but yeah. I think uh, as we discussed off the off yeah. the microphone here, you had an innumerable uh, choice of, of structures as to how you could uh, invest people's money. And right. you chose to be a registered investment advisor why don't you tell us about why you chose that structure sure. and what it means? As a registered investment advisor, we're effectively a fiduciary for all our clients, uh, which means that we, we have to act in the best interest of our clients. A broker can effectively ask and, uh, can ask and can act in a uh, way where they provide strategies or products that are quote, appropriate for a client. So we really are held to a slightly higher standard uh, than a brokerage firm in that we have to act as a fiduciary and we do act as a fiduciary for all our clients and uh, if you look at how uh, the firm's compensation is structured uh, we tend to make more money or we do make more money the larger the assets of our uh, uh, the larger assets a client uh, grows to 
Uh, so we're, we're charging a percentage of assets under management, and as those assets increase over time, uh, we, we make more money. So we, we want to try and get those assets as high as we possibly can over time. Uh, whereas uh, sometimes in the brokerage world, uh, they're, they're, the payment structure is based on commissions, where it's uh, getting a product into a client's hand and being paid a percentage of that one product, which is often uh, much higher than what the registered investment advisor is potentially uh, working with. But the, 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 the larger issue is that if the way you can make money in the U.S. equity markets or just investing over time is by investing in the equity markets and staying invested over long periods of time. It is not by chasing the hot product. It is not by chasing the private equity deal that they're uh, talking about. It really is by investing in equities and staying invested over the long period of time and letting the growth of the U.S. economy and the U.S. market uh, lift your returns over long periods of time. So what I'm trying to do with the firm is make sure that philosophy goes out to everyone and that clients and, and, and employees and everyone understands that our goal is to try and get an allocation for a client across our proprietary strategies and be able to stay with that allocation through an extended period of time, uh, regardless of whether the market initially goes up or down, because we know in the long run, the market will head up over time. It might not head up every year, it might not head up every three-year period or even every five-year period, but over a long period of time, uh, you're, the market will head higher, and that is how people generate wealth uh, with investing. They don't generate it by buying a hot product. You, you know, the product that looks hot today is because it was engineered to be very, very good uh, for the past, uh, uh, for whatever happened uh, last. And usually what happens is what happened last uh, doesn't repeat itself. So coming out of 2008, uh, there were products that were being produced by brokerage firms uh, that showed very, very, you know, although this thing did very well in 2008 and uh, they purchased them. Hedge funds are a product that falls into this category sure. and they did not do well for the next seven years. And uh, an investor was much better off in both instances to invest in the equity markets, deal with a fluctuation like 08 and try and stay invested over long periods of time. Okay, well, let's let's talk about that proprietary mix of strategies you alluded to. Sure, uh, a lot of firms that uh, that that uh, are in the marketplace um, use a, a cookie cutter approach, uh, to use a phrase. Right. Um, you know, perhaps they have a growth strategy or they have an income strategy, and you're either in one or both of those buckets. But uh, you know, given the fact that each client has different risk tolerances and different objectives, um, what is the benefit of this diversified mix of our proprietary strategies? Sure, the, the real benefit is that we truly understand what we're doing in all of these strategies. So because we're producing our own data, we're using our own data to produce our own uh, models of uh, statistical uh, alpha models that are called, and because we know exactly how we're picking stocks in all these strategies, we're effectively vertically integrated. So we're not outsourcing the investment activity to another firm and they're saying, well, look, we have this strategy and you're not never quite sure what they're doing in that. So we know exactly how we're, how we're running all these strategies and then we can combine them together in a composite that is then customized for each individual investor. So instead of trying to outsource the asset management to another firm, we can essentially vertically integrate 
And I think the benefits there are twofold. One, we can provide a better uh, risk-adjusted return for the client than you can through trying to use other asset managers. And two, I think we can provide it a lower fee structure. Uh, because we don't have to hire external asset managers uh, to run strategies, we're managing it ourselves. So the benefit to the client is a lower cost uh, strategy with a better risk uh, control uh, than you would you could conceivably get uh, by using other people's strategies. And uh, what we're trying to do over time in our proprietary strategies is is to outperform uh, our benchmarks in each of the proprietary strategies. Okay, so to, now we're digging in a little bit into the nuts and bolts of, of how yes. this works. So we're getting into the actual uh, strategies themselves. Uh, I know I've had clients uh, ask me to open up the black box, and we yes. know we use we use our proprietary yes. research as a, as a foundation for a lot of our analysis. How does this uh, trickle down, if you will, to each of these individual sure. strategies, all of this research? What we are looking on or what we are looking for in each of these strategies is something called uh, an anomaly. An anomaly is a way of categorizing stocks. So those stocks uh, have historically and hopefully in the future will generate a higher level of return than other groups of stocks. For instance, there's a value anomaly uh, in the marketplace. If you identify stocks that are trading at attractive valuations and you buy stocks that are trading at lower P multiples or lower price to book multiples over long periods of time, that group of stocks will outperform that group of stocks that are trading at very expensive valuation multiples. So there's a value anomaly over time. You generate a higher rate of return with a potentially lower risk level with value stocks over a long period of time than you do with growth stocks. Now that doesn't happen every year, it doesn't happen every three years, it doesn't happen every five years, but the anomaly exists. So one of the anomalies we use is the value anomaly. Another anomaly we use is an anomaly that we created uh, called the earnings estimate revision anomaly. And what that anomaly focuses on is that you can identify stocks that are receiving upward earnings estimate revisions. Those stocks statistically over long periods of time will outperform those stocks that are not receiving upward estimate revisions and also outperform those stocks that are receiving downward earnings estimate revisions. So again, what we're using in some of our strategies is we're looking at a value anomaly, we're looking at earnings estimate revision anomaly, we're potentially trying to put those two anomalies together, generate an alpha score or a scoring system for a universe of stocks, and then use optimization techniques to make sure the risk of the portfolio is very, very similar to the benchmark. So what at the end of the day, what we want to have is for each of these benchmarks that we're trying to outperform, we want to have relatively similar risk characteristics, but we want to have a bias towards groups of stocks that are exposed to these anomalies. So for instance, if you're looking in the uh, Russell 1000 value space, the anomalies that we're looking at really is a uh, valuation anomaly and a quality anomaly. Over long periods of time, stocks with more attractive valuations tend to outperform, and stocks of a higher quality level tend to outperform. Now, that hasn't, that's not the case every year, and it's not the case when certain things happen from a macroeconomic perspective, but statistically, over long periods of time, if when looking at value stocks, you give a bias towards stocks that have a better metric in terms of valuation and have a better metric in terms of the earnings quality they're generating, you can generate higher returns than the benchmark can over time. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're trying to outperform the Russell 1000 value index and then let's work individually with each client so that we understand what their allocation should be to the 
large cap value space and what their allocation should be potentially to fixed income or to small cap stocks uh, to best generate a return for the client over long periods of time. Within these strategies, I know there's a, a, a bunch of different sectors. Let's use that Russell 1000 yes. value index you were talking about. Uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe our dividend strategy is yes. benchmarked to that index. How do we uh, apply those anomalies across different sectors? And are there are there other uh, qualitative filters that you yes. that you consider when weighting sectors? Or how do you deal with that? In each of these strategies, the quantitative models are delivered to a portfolio management team mm -hmm. uh, that is either uh, headed by myself or Ben Zacks. And we qualitatively analyze the quantitative output and come to a decision. The level of qualitative analysis differs across different strategies. Some strategies, we're taking the quantitative output and we're implementing it on a uh, monthly rebalance basis. Other strategies, we're looking at the quantitative output and we're making uh, decisions as to which of the top-ranked stocks we want to be buying and which of the bottom-ranked stocks we want to be selling. In our dividend strategy, which is, is performing extremely well over the last one, three, five, seven, and ten-year period, uh, we are qualitatively reviewing the buy, hold, and sell list generated through this quantitative process and making about one to two trades per month out of a portfolio of approximately 60, 60 positions. And by doing that, we're able to reduce the turnover relative to the quantitative, uh, pure quantitative model, and we're also able to better keep the risk in line with the benchmark. So that if, for instance, uh, a trade that the quantitative model might be recommending uh, might be increasing our exposure to financials and reducing our exposure to utilities. And right now we're underweighted in utilities and we're slightly overweighted in financials in our large cap value space. So we will look at that trade and say, listen, this trade does not reduce the overall risk of the portfolio and we will not want to implement it. Similarly, what we're on the, on the, what we're on the lookout for is uh, uh, a potential trade that might increase our energy exposure and might reduce our technology exposure because we're overweighted right now slightly by about 1% in technology and we're underweighted uh, by you know about 5 to 6% in energy. So we're looking for a trade that will reduce that exposure. And so the combination of the qualitative analysis with the quantitative model enables us to keep the risk very much in line uh, with the benchmark and to reduce the overall volatility of the portfolio uh, from what would be experienced if you just implemented the pure alpha model. If you implemented a pure uh, alpha model in the large cap value space, you would have almost no energy stocks at this point in time in the portfolio because the factors that we're using to select the stocks in terms of dividend yield, short interest relative to shares outstanding, and cash flow yield are just simply not materializing uh, amongst energy stocks. But you need energy stocks in the portfolio because not only does your benchmark have it, but at some point in time, they're going to buy the energy stocks despite the fact you're seeing short interest going up and you're seeing the cash flow go, go to zero amongst these stocks. So you want to make sure that you underweight the energy stocks, but you have some exposure to energy stocks over time. Well, I mean, that's really helpful to me and it's interesting to me because this is stuff I love to talk about. But a lot of our clients, you know, they, they, they take the hood of their car and they put it up and they say the edge is either running or it's not. I don't need to know about right. how the carburetor is going here. Right. For me, this stuff is really interesting. I love hearing about how the process actually works and how you add value right. over and above whatever the benchmark is. But I think 
the, the point here is that Zax is a, a very sophisticated uh, alternative for a lot of uh, potential clients that are out there that are looking for someone who can add this value. I and think Steve, I would, a lot. I don't want to get a lot of the value is added by the relationship the advisor will have with the client and dealing with the client's uh, psychological changes that occur as the market goes up and down. We know the correct answer. Correct answer is to be invested in the U.S. equities, some global diversification, some fixed income exposure. But try and get as invested in U.S. equities as you can, and try and stay invested over extended periods of time. And that's very, very hard for a client to do. It's extremely hard. You see things like the election, and you get uh, people get very worked up, and they start to become very concerned. What if this party wins, or what if that party wins? What you have to be able to do is take a step back and look at it from a historical context and realize that if you can stay invested and ignore the fluctuations, you can generate returns over time. And it helps dramatically to have an individual you're actually able to talk to to help keep you invested. And right. uh, I'm getting the countdown from Craig now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we're going to leave uh, it there. Mitch, we'll leave oh, it there. Thanks. And, and here's okay. the number to call, 800-245-2943. Speak to an, uh, uh, an advisor at Zach's Investment Management. Um, thank you for staying with us uh, the whole way through The Steady Investor. We'll be net back next week, and we hope to hear you. Uh, see you then. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 